Good morning. I've always had mixed feelings about Mother's Day in worship services. On the one hand, it is a day of honoring our mothers and those who have nurtured us and nurtured us in the faith. Um, it is a joyous occasion to honor. It is fun. On the other hand, it can be a day of a pain for those who have fractured relationships, difficult relationships. For those who, for one reason or another, who have wanted to be a mother and cannot, it is painful. It is a reminder. But though it is difficult to walk this line, I think it is important for us to celebrate mothers. For, for, for me, it is not only an opportunity to celebrate our biological mothers, but it is a, a doorway into talking about the greater family of God that is ours. For we have, for this season, mothers and fathers. But we have, for eternity, the family of God. And that is the solution and hope for us in both joy and pain. Mother's Day, and I didn't know this, I, I looked it up this week, uh, was uh, actually there were efforts to establish a Mother's Day recognition that go back to the early 19th century. Most of them were unsuccessful. Finally, in the early 20th century, Anna Jarvis, with the help of a friend by the name of John Wanamaker, got it to stick. Um, together, they did a joint venture that was both church as well as commercially centered. On the second Sunday in May in 1908 at St. Andrew's Methodist Church in West Virginia and at John Wanamaker's department store in downtown Philadelphia, there was a Mother's Day celebration. And from that moment on, every year for the second Sunday in May, there was a celebration. In 1914, President Woodrow Wilson recognized it and made it a national holiday. Now, what's interesting about this whole story is that Anna Jarvis wanted this to be a time of honoring our mothers, whether they were alive or dead, a, t a quiet time, you know, of, of visiting your mother, of spending time, of communication, touching base. And so she was absolutely appalled and horrified when the <laughs> flower and, and the, the gift card industry kind of took over the holiday and commercialized it. And so in 1948, when she died, she was actually trying to take it off the national calendar. <laughs> Mother's Day. For me, the value of recognizing this day in the church is realizing that the goodness of God is with us as sons and daughters. No matter our biological family, we have this family. And, and I just call you on this day to be the family of God, to be the connected community. And don't do it right now, but as you go out of this place, I want you to look around the room and make note of those who are here this morning 
and just make one call and, and make note of who is not here and just make one call. For we would do the same for our biological families if we miss them. And so, this is a day to honor mothers, to celebrate the family, and to, to really hear the call of Paul as he shares the final letter of his life with Timothy, to take the gospel to the next generation. To the next generation. Let's pray. Lord God, may the words of my mouth and may the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our strength, our redeemer. May these words be your words. And for all that I don't speak, O oh God, or misspeak, may you fill in the gaps that we would hear your word today. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. It, it is reasonable to believe that the second letter of Timothy in the New Testament was Paul's final letter. Cindy read just a few verses from chapter 1 in 2 Timothy. Um, in all, of other, all, all other of Paul's letters, he talks about what he's going to do next. He talks about wh what, where he's going to visit, where he's going to go, about missionary journeys that are coming up. In this letter, there is more resignation. Paul is in prison and it may have been just days after he sent this letter that he was executed. The letter was written in the mid-60s. We know that Paul was executed in the mid-60s. He says this, The time of my departure is at hand. I fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Paul wants to give Timothy his protege. Words of encouragement, instruction, and strength for the days to come. That's what this letter is about. Passing the torch to the next generation. In verse 4 and 5, he says, recalling your tears. We don't know what the tears were for. Um, just probably <clears throat> because Timothy knew what was coming. And the last time that he saw Paul, probably when he left, he shared tears of... of uh, of sadness and of, of, of being separated with Paul. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy and I am reminded of your sincere faith. With these words, Paul, he shares his confidence in Timothy. There's no greater inspiration than to feel that someone believes in us. An appeal to the best in someone is always more effective than a threat of punishment. For we fear letting down those who believe in us more than we fear punishment. And then in verse 5, he continues, a faith, he starts describing this faith, that lived first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure lives in you. Paul, in two other letters, mentions mothers. Evidently, they were really important to him. Um, and when he, when he refers to Timothy, he's talking about a faith that was passed to the next generation, to Timothy's generation. And he's reminding Timothy of his family tradition. Not just 
a biological tradition, but a spiritual one. And, and in the same way, on Mother's Day, it, it is a reminder of our responsibility to pass the torch, to raise the next generation, to bring up our children in the faith. And it's also a reminder for the church. For we as the church take a vow on a regular basis. Every time some child is baptized or dedicated before the church, we take a vow that we shall support and do all that we can that this child may be brought up in the faith so that the next generation shall be ready to share the faith. And he continues on in the next verse. And this is where the meat is. For this reason I remind you to rekindle the gift of God that is within you through the laying on of my hands. Paul is recalling that he's laid hands on Timothy to empower him, to send him, to set him apart. And that with those hands, he receives the gift of God. Um, the word there for gift is charisma. Charisma. Charisma is the root word for which we get grace in the New Testament. It means gift. But charisma is also used by Paul in 1 Corinthians and in Romans to describe the spiritual gifts. It is the word from which we get our term charismatic, one who's filled with the Holy Spirit. When Paul says the gift of God, he's talking about a spiritual gift. He's talking about a gift that envelops, inspires, and moves. It, it is a gift that makes us more than we can ever be on our own. We go forward not on our, not only on the strength and patience of ourselves, but of the Holy Spirit. Paul continues. For God did not give us a spirit of cowardice, but rather a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. I'm, <clears throat> I'm just, I, I guess I've been disturbed of all of the fear and fear-mongering that I have heard over the last year. It is like our leaders want us to be afraid. That is not of God. God wants us to be fearless. He wants us to be fearless. And, and so what Paul is saying here, he's saying to Timothy, he's saying, you have received this spirit, this gift of God. And you are fearless. You are ready to face anything. We are able to cope every and, and to handle every task that is before us, to stand firm when faced with a shattering situation, to, uh, to have the power to retain faith when confronted with souls destroying sorrow or wounding disappointment. 
Christians are characteristically those who are pushed beyond <laughs> the breaking point and they don't break. Amen? We don't break, not with the Spirit of God. Second, God gives us the power of love. Now, Paul uses the word agape. There's uh, three primary words for love in, in, the, in New Testament Greek. Agape is the highest form. It is divine love. It is love which leads to sacrifice. It is that which is, is poured out upon another uh, unconditionally. And as we read from Paul in other letters, we know that it is divine love that enables us to be the kind of person that God calls us to be, a person of patience, a person of joy, a person of peace, a person of strength and confidence. And finally, self-discipline. Now, self-discipline is not just um, not eating your uh, uh, sweets or chips in the middle of the afternoon, okay? This self-discipline is the deepest kind of strength in terms of resistance that one can have. It is the word uh, sophronismos, sophronismos, and it means, here's what it means, it means control of oneself in the face of panic. Control of oneself in the face of panic. It's not control of oneself when you have a sugar, <laughs> you know, panic. It's not control of oneself when you when you want to yeah, when you want to procrastinate. This is this is control of oneself when you want to run. This is control of yourself when you when you want to just disappear. That by the spirit and power of God that we are by the Holy Spirit and able to stand tall and confident no matter what is before us. Paul wants Timothy to know that. That there was nothing that Timothy could not face. And why is that important? Okay, well that's important because as we kind of begin to ask the question, so what does this mean for us today? we can start looking at the context, okay? And the context of this passage is that by the 60s, in the first century, the disciples of Jesus and the early apostles were all being martyred. And we know by the end of the century, all but John had been executed or martyred in some form or fashion. And it's Timothy's generation is watching this. They are hearing about it. They're hearing about the martyrdom. They're hearing about the persecution. They're hearing about what the Romans are doing to the Christians. And they've got to be questioning, is this the end? Have the Romans prevailed? Have the pagans stomped us out? Is this the end? And Paul wants Timothy to know, uh-uh, <laughs> not on your life. This is only the beginning. 
For you have been given power not on your own, but of God. This letter is Paul's encouragement to Timothy in the face of an uncertain future. And Paul knows that Timothy and leaders like him will need the power of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul pushes Timothy to rekindle the fire of the Holy Spirit that's already within him. And as that fire grows and multiplies, so Timothy is given the, uh, as we know from, from church history, given the ability to be the next great leader of the church. So what does this mean for us in the 21st century? I got to tell you right now, and I could be completely wrong, but in my lifetime, there are more threats to the church now than at any other time in my life. Those who are interested in the church, those who are interested in the faith, are at an all-time 30-something year low. We're seeing people across the nation question the things of God and particularly of the church. I mean, it, it would be natural to ask the question, well, is this the end? It's been a nice 2,000-year run, you know, but, you know, everything has to come to an end, right? No. Uh-uh. Here's the deal. When we look back over the last 2,000 years, do you know when the church has prospered? Do you know when the power of God has been at a, at a peak? Do you know when the great revivals have taken place? When the threat was the highest. When the, when the pressure was at the highest point. That's when the Spirit of God has made a move. And that's why I believe right now, as I, you know, what does this letter mean for us today? I think it means that, <laughs> that God is getting ready to do a great thing. God is getting ready to bring a new revival. I can feel the early winds of the Holy Spirit blowing. I can see it across our nation. There may be those who are, that we see are kind of questioning the church, questioning the faith, questioning the existence of God. But when you look at the deepening of the faith in those like you, it is a rekindling of the fire. And here's the deal. I believe that this revival and next movement will take place in churches like First Methodist Carrollton. Churches that have that 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 focus on connected community, that focus on, on, on helping people grow in their discipleship and in their faith, that, that, <coughs> that emphasize what it means to be a part of a church family. I truly believe for as good as they have been, that the day of the megachurch has passed, and it is only a matter of time. This is the place where God's spirit shall work. This is the place. Churches that are passing the baton of faith to the next generation. 
Churches that are more concerned about going outside their doors into the community and reaching those for Jesus Christ than just keeping those within the door satisfied. Churches that are not afraid to be bold and outspoken. Churches that proclaim the salvation and lordship of Jesus to any who will listen. That's what this message from Paul means for us. It is our turn to pass the torch. It is our turn to bring up the Timothys. It is our turn to do whatever it takes to see those grow up in the faith. So um, as I look at this through the lens of Mother's Day, I give thanks. I give thanks for my own mother, for all of her faults. She was a woman of faith who was tenacious in her faith and sometimes demanding in her faith on her children. I give thanks for Sue, who was my high school Sunday school teacher, who was willing to do whatever it took to share the, the, the message of Jesus Christ, even if it meant letting me stand on my head one Sunday morning during Sunday school class. That's the truth. She was absolutely incredible. I give thanks for Opal and Virginia and Mary who never gave up on me as a young, inexperienced, green pastor. And so, it is our turn to bless the next generation, to rekindle the fire, to be the family of God, not just for ourselves, but for all of those all of those that are yet to be. Thanks be to God.